This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. You can kind of tell at the end of some scripture readings, uh, we're a little more hesitant to say thanks to God. (laughs) Yeah, so there's a lot. uh, I I hope I have at least a measure of clarity on that parable we're going to kind of end with the parable so we're going to we're going to build build up to that so hold off um we're, we're going to get there uh to try to make sense of that parable and in the meantime uh we are going to weave uh, a handful of things together and there's some Sundays where I feel like the guy from Always Sunday in Philadelphia the meme you know where he's like putting all the things together with the strings and the papers on the wall um so I feel like that a little some Sundays and and that's sort of where my head is at and I'm hoping that um There'll be some clarity as we we work through this and talk a little bit about the kingdom of God and kind of put ourselves in the story a little bit to sort of see the the flow of what's happening here in Luke. And I think that will illuminate some of the things that are uh, going on in this passage. So it'll it'll make a little more sense. So that's my hope. That's my hope as we go through this. So let me pray and ask the Lord for some help um, and just for his spirit to open our hearts uh, to just have... Uh, maybe just to accept uh, what he has said, even though we we say that with our lips. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Um, I thank you that we don't have to doubt your character. Um, even in hard passages, um, we can say with confidence that you are loving, you are good, or or as the ladies have been studying, you are your heart is gentle and lowly. Lord, you in your your in your most essential being to love and to care for and to display your glory to the creatures whom you've created. Yet, Lord, we live in a world where even as you are so loving and kind, so often we kind of just ignore you, reject you, push back. Sometimes we hate what you're doing and you need to respond and you you need to bring justice in the world. And yeah, those are just difficult things for us to wrestle with. I pray this morning as we, <clears throat> as we look at the dangers, dangers of things like apathy or despair, as we look at the nature of your kingdom, as we think through what Christ is doing, sitting, ruling, and reigning on his throne, I pray that you would just give me um, a measure of peace. Give me a sense of your spirit who is here in the words. Um, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to stir our affections more towards you and and give us a zeal. Give us a zeal to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and a a true desire that comes from the inside. I know that we can do things because we ought to and we do things because we should, but Lord, I want you to help encourage us and stir us to do things because we want to. So that's what I'm asking for this morning. So I thank you for this time. I thank you for this passage and your name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so we're, like I said, we're kind of ending our, our section. We broke up, um, we broke up Luke into a handful of sections. And the longest section was essentially chapter 9, verse like 51, all the way to kind of the end of chapter 19, where we just ended actually right here. So, so right after this parable, um, and we're going to be jumping around a little bit in the book of Luke. So if you 
up into Luke, that'll that should be helpful. But we'll we'll be kind of a little bit all over the place in Luke because we're we're trying to do is we're trying to make sense of what's going on. And after he says that parable in verse twenty eight, it says, "And when he had said these things, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem." So so we've been journeying for ten chapters now towards Jerusalem, and he tells this parable and, and he says those, those words that are that were kind of hard for us to. It's a word of the Lord, too. Thanks be to God. He says those hard words, and then immediately after that, in Luke's narrative, we're into Jerusalem. So there's like a there's a location shift. Um, there's a there's a shift in the story where we go from traveling through, on our way to Jerusalem to finally landing in Jerusalem. Where over the next few weeks we'll be talking about the finale. We're talking about what Jesus does at Jerusalem. It's a it's a it's like a, a huge, important part of Luke's narrative, this, this the idea that he's landed in Jerusalem and now sort of the, the finale is imminent. So we could ask ourselves, why does Luke, why does Luke put such a huge section of his book, like 10 chapters on the journey to Jerusalem? Like what, 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 is, what is he doing by putting an emphasis there? I think there's, only, uh, there's no one else, no other gospel writer that puts so much emphasis on this journey to Jerusalem. And kind of just to highlight some of that, I want to point out a couple of things. <clears throat> Let's go all the way back to chapter 9 where this starts. I want to show you that this is sort of an important theme for Luke uh, as, we, as we go through this journey on our way to Jerusalem. If you look at chapter, let's see, let's go with uh, chapter 10, verse 38. Sorry for all you digital folks that are like, then have to go back. Um, chapter 10, verse 38 says, now as they were on their way, Jesus entered the village. Where are they on their way? They're on their way to Jerusalem. If you flip a couple pages forward in, in verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 22, he says, he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And then you look at chapter 17, verse 11. It says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And then we go all the way back to where we began in chapter 9. In verse 51, it's where everything started. He said, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So I kind of through that just to show you that Luke is is reminding us even as he goes through these 10 chapters that he's on his way to Jerusalem (laughs) he's turning to go to Jerusalem he's on his way and says as they were on their way to Jerusalem so this is a significant uh idea for Luke this this fact that Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem and if we're going to get sort of like a clue and say okay what is what is Jesus doing why is he on his way to Jerusalem we can look at the, 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 what happens right before he, he drew near to, to set his face to Jerusalem in chapter 9. And that's the transfiguration. The transfiguration. There's right before he moves to Jerusalem in Luke's story, there's the transfiguration. There's Jesus ascends a hill with his closest disciples. And all of a sudden there's like, it's the same word where we get metamorphosis from. He like utterly transformed where his robes are, are glowing and, and uh, Peter and John can't help but just like fall on the ground and say, oh my Lord, we should, we should build tabernacles. We should worship here. There's some amazing thing going on where, where Jesus is transfigured right in front of us and his glory is shining in a way that it's never done before. So there's this, this, this thing that's going on in the transfiguration and 
in that instance, when kind of all of this is happening, a voice comes from heaven, God's presence shows up. There's like all of these like crazy things that the disciples are experiencing, but he's talking to a couple of people and he's talking to Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration. And Luke is the only one that tells us what they were talking about. He says in uh, verse 30 of chapter nine, and behold, two men, this is while all this kind of craziness is going on, his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. Spoke of his departure. And you probably have a little footnote in your Bible. That word is spoke of his exodus. He's talking to Moses about his exodus. It like, you know, you can't, you know, this is an overused analogy, but it's a good one. Like you can't, Luke can't write this and like hyperlink us up back to Exodus, you know? Like, like we're scrolling Wikipedia and it's just like a blue thing and you click and it's like Exodus, you know? But if you were to highlight, underline, make a, a point, talking about Moses and talking about Exodus is like the, a big way to say, look what Jesus is gonna do in Jerusalem. He's gonna do an Exodus. And so, so what does that mean? What does it mean that he's gonna do an Exodus? And we'll, we'll kind of, you know, the sermon title is The Danger of Despair and Apathy. And that's gonna be kind of the conclusion. I maybe should have just saved that for later. Um, but when you make a bunch of little titles, you have to feel like you have to like have a little title the same way through the whole series. So ignore all of that. And what we're focusing on right now as we work through this passage, as we lead up to that parable, <clears throat> is we're, try, we're trying to like see what's going on here. And, and as Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem, what, what is Jesus realizing? What is like Jesus bringing into existence is he's bringing a cosmic exodus. A cosmic exodus. He's actually, so we think about the exodus. We think about what happened with Moses and what Jesus was doing. And this is saying, Luke is saying, this is what Jesus is gonna accomplish in Jerusalem so what did, what did Moses accomplish in the past? We did the um, Bible storybook, um, and we actually just talked about this a couple days ago with JJ. It's, it's, a, it's like one of the most common Bible stories, and it's like Pharaoh, he's the bad guy, you know, in the, uh, the illustrated version, he had the brows like this, you know, that's how you know he's bad. Um, and it's like trying to paint over the story of like, baby genocide, like in the kid's book, you know? He's like, they wanted to put the babies in the river, you know? Like, oh, look, Moses built a little, mom built a little basket. And he like, you know, and I can just see him being like, in the river, what's wrong with that, you know? Like Pharaoh hated God's people, enslaved them, wouldn't let them go worship God, wouldn't let them go to the promised land, which is a picture of the new creation, and wanted to murder all their children. So now he is like the, he is like the type and that, that whole idea of the Exodus is like a little picture of this like cosmic reality of, of our, our enemy, our ultimate enemy, the ultimate Pharaoh, which is the devil himself, who hates God's children, who despises the true worship of God, who has thrown all of creation 
into slavery to sin. Everything is broken and messed up and not the way it should be because of this, this greater Pharaoh, this greater enemy that's just ruined everything. And here's Jesus kind of showing up on the scene. And before, before we even get to this section, the transfiguration, he goes and does battle with Satan in the wilderness. And now he sort of defeated him in a sense. Uh, Jesus in another parable says he's bound him, sort of like dis disabled him in a sense. And now he's journeying on his way to Jerusalem to, to sort of finalize this ordeal and accomplish this cosmic exodus where he'll rescue all of his people worldwide out of their slavery to sin and begin to restore everything and bring us into true worship and the eternal, the eternal new creation where there's no sin, there's no suffering, there's no death. So this entire journey that Jesus is doing is a, is a battle with his enemies on his way to Jerusalem so that he could accomplish this cosmic exodus. And it's interesting if you look at what in the, in the temptation, go back to chapter four. This could be all over the book of Luke. <clears throat> it's interesting after the temptation in verse 13, this is, what it says about the devil. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until the opportune time. Like he's not done. He departed from him until the opportune time. Satan knows what Jesus is going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And spoiler alert, he's not a fan. He knows what the Messiah has come to do. And so it's no surprise to us then as we walk through this 10 chapter journey, as Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, there's battle after battle with the demonic forces. He's casting out demons. And, and part of Satan's tool set, as he's looking for this opportune time, part of Satan's tool set as he's coming after Jesus, as he's, as he's trying to keep him from accomplishing this cosmic exodus on every, I mean, think about Pharaoh in the exodus. He, how, as you read through the story, it's like God brings trial after trial and punishment after punishment. And you're like, halfway through, you're like, Pharaoh, give up. <laughs> like, it's over. Like, why do you keep dragging this on and making it more miserable for yourself? How much more determined do you think Satan is? How much more determined do you think he is than Pharaoh? So things are escalating and he has set his face to Jerusalem. And it's interesting in the gospels, Peter says, Lord, you can't go to Jerusalem. And what does he say to him? Get behind me, Satan. There's a battle there. One of the tools as we, we, you know, we've spent the last few weeks working through all these chapters, one of the tools that Satan has to, to uh, look for this opportune time is deception. Is deception. And so it shouldn't surprise us then through this whole journey on the way to Jerusalem, yes, he's casting out demons and, and Satan is working through his minions, so to speak, but who else is battling him the whole time? The Pharisees. They're using God's word and they're twisting it 
And he says, you're, you're, he has such hard words for them because they're leading people astray with God's word. Think about what they're trying to keep from happening. Think about all the things that were hard this week. Think about all the anxiety that you have when certain stuff is going on. Think about the, I mean, all the natural disasters. Like, you know, I don't even like to want to open the news, you know, because things happen that are just terrible. Think about everything that's wrong with the world and realize that in this moment, as Jesus is working his way to Jerusalem, everything around him, all the dark spiritual forces, everything that Satan can muster, he's like Pharaoh throwing everything he can at Jesus and saying, I don't want any of that to be undone. I want things to be the way they are. I want things to be worse. And here's Jesus journeying on his way to Jerusalem, casting out demons, calling out lies, pointing out hypocrisy, determined to make his way to Jerusalem. Because what is Jesus realizing as he does this? A cosmic exodus, a rescue for all of his people from their slavery to sin, from the brokenness in the world, from the evil one who wants everything to be destroyed. So when he does this, when he accomplishes this exodus, what will Jesus receive? Yeah, eternal glory. Or a more specific word that Luke uses is a kingdom. And it's a heaven and earth kingdom. It's a heaven and earth kingdom. And I want to... I think this is where things get a little messy. Let's turn to chapter 17 in verse 20. Again, we're, we're not quite there to Jerusalem yet, but you know we're seven chapters into this journey, so, so things are kind of escalating. It said there's so many crowds like pressing around them that people are being trampled. The Pharisees are going after him, trying to look for him to catch him in a lie. They're like openly together, like figuring out how can we destroy this person? Satan is looking for an opportune time. Doesn't want any of these things to happen. And Jesus says, being asked by the Pharisees, you know, these are enemy number one, you know, maybe number two, you can count Satan up there, but these are the people resisting his desire to go accomplish this cosmic exodus. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, so, I mean, think about this. They're not, some people ask questions because they want to know, and some people ask questions because they're jerks, right? <laughs> this is not they want to know, you know? They're like, hey, Jesus, what, what, like, when is this going to happen? Like, show, prove it to me. Like, help me understand what you're doing is, is true and right and good, you know? They're like, show me. With, with all the crowds around, like, let, let me, let me, like, let's, let's, uh, let's question your, your work. And he gives them kind of part of the truth. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's like, there is a real sense right now where the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And John the Baptist questions it even at one point, and he doesn't, what, he, what does he say to John the Baptist? He says, hey, what's happening right now? The blind are seeing, the gospel is being proclaimed, people are being raised from the dead. This is John sitting in prison like, you sure the kingdom is here? You know, like I'm in prison about to get my head cut off. And Jesus is like, it's here. Like it's happening. The king has arrived and he's working his way towards this cosmic exodus. Like this is what's going on right now. And then he looks at his disciples and he says to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man. You desire to see. And you're like, wait, Jesus, didn't you just say like you won't see? He says, look, uh, nor will they say, look, here it is. Uh, It's not coming with signs to be observed. And then he goes to his disciples and says, look, you guys, you're going to want to see the aspects of the kingdom. You're going to want to see with your own eyes the fact that I'm ruling and reigning. And look at what he, he says some interesting things. And I, kind of the preemptive point, so you're tracking me a little bit, hopefully, is that the kingdom is a heaven and an earth kingdom. Like there is a material truth to the kingdom, like physical things. And there is immaterial, spiritual realities of the kingdom coming. Like they're both things. He isn't gonna play into the Pharisees like demands for him to prove himself because they're working against him. And he tells them, look, this is very this is true but then he goes to his disciples and he tells them more and this happens a lot in the in the gospel of luke he even says hey i'm telling parables because like it's not for them to know they're my enemies it's for you to know i want to teach you i want i want you to understand so he looks at his disciples and says you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it And he'll say to you, look there, look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it'll be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the floods came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And he goes on to kind of encourage them some things. But he's, he's, he's communicating to them this pattern that you see in Scripture. He's communicating this pattern that you see in scripture where there's visible realities of God's kingdom coming. And and it's like everybody is kind of having a great time and ignoring the things that God is doing, the, the invisible realities of God's kingdom. And all of a sudden there's like a physical manifestation of this. And this passage, there's a passage in Matthew where he gets really specific and points at the temple and says, not one of these stones will be overturned and this generation will like see what's going to happen and there there's an there's you know there's all kinds of debate but the biggest debate is like hey after jesus died and rose again and was seated on the throne do you know what the dramatic manifestation of the kingdom of god that happened shortly after that that the disciples were witnesses of is the destruction of jerusalem in 70 a.d 
decimated by the Romans. Decimated by the Romans. Like the Jews today are still like living in light of what happened there. Decimated. If you look forward, it's chapter 22. Chapter 22, Jesus has been captured, mocked, beaten. And they're questioning him. And he said, when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together. Oh, sorry, verse 66, chapter 22, verse 66. The assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chiefs, priests, and scribes. And they led him away to their council and said, if you are the Christ, then tell us. Again, they're not, this isn't like, because we just want to know. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer, because they didn't answer him. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated on the right hand of the power of God. Amen. He's warning them and saying, I'm taking the abuse because I'm set on the death and resurrection, the atonement that's going to happen for my people. I am setting my mind on the, on the glory that's set before me is the way Hebrews talks about it. But he is determined to accomplish this cosmic exodus, which the, 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 the Pharisees in their, in their blindness and their foolishness think that the, the destruction of Jesus is actually what's gonna sort of help them accomplish their goal. And surprise, it doesn't happen. It actually accomplishes Christ's goal. And he, because of his death, resurrection now he is able to receive the kingdom and he's warning them and using this language of the son of man and it's his most i think it was like 70 times or something i don't don't quote me on that it's a was when chat gpt just makes up an answer for something like a lot of times um 70 is likely (laughs) um but he uses the title son of man of himself when jesus is talking about himself he uses that title the most and, and really the only place we make sense of that is like in Ezekiel and in Daniel, uh, which are like, like the hardest books of the Bible to understand. <laughs> so it's like all kinds of crazy visions and images and things like that. And there's this image in Daniel where one like the son of man approaches the throne and receives a kingdom. And the angel sort of interprets that image and talks about how the kingdom of the world will 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 essentially cause the son of man to suffer, but then they will receive the kingdom for all eternity. And, and the son of man, it's, it's interesting in Daniel, it was, is the son of man like a person or is it like a group? And that's kind of like the hard thing to sort of decipher when you're reading through Daniel. And I think uh, a side note is we could say as Christians now, post the cross, post uh, the rest of the New Testament, uh, we are the body of Christ, are the saints Jesus or the, the body of Jesus? Like there, there's this idea of like the plurality, but also we're all wrapped up in Jesus himself. He is the true Israel. And the true Israel is one guy that came 2000 years ago and all of us who are united to him. And so deciphering all that in Daniel is, is interesting and, and kind of fun. But Jesus is using this title, the son of man, because what he's communicating to those who have ears to hear, what he's sharing about the kingdom 
is that all the things he's accomplishing, this exodus that he's accomplishing, well, he will then receive a kingdom where he has authority both on, in heaven, in a spiritual sense, and on earth. Amen. In heaven and on earth. Which is why in Acts, you have thousands of people who are converted and uh, become part of the church like instantly. Which is why I believe you also have the destruction of Jerusalem. He's like, I'm accomplished. Jesus is like, I'm going to be the king and I'm gonna have authority over every part of this universe, heaven and earth, and I'm gonna accomplish my purposes. Amen. And if you're the Pharisees, you should be worried. And he even warns the disciples, when this happens, run, escape, don't hang out. When, when Jerusalem is siege, get out of there, go somewhere else. Don't, like, people are going to die. It's going to be terrible. And he's warning his disciples of these things. And he gives kind of this pattern of like, this is kind of how it works. Look at Noah. Look at Lot. Look at Israel. Everything is great. And then all of a sudden, the reality of the kingdom comes crashing in on the earth in a, in a real and tangible way. So he's encouraging his disciples that he's going to receive a kingdom that applies on heaven and earth. Now, I want to I just, <clears throat> a verse you're all familiar with, but maybe we haven't thought through the implications of it, is the end of Matthew. And I'll have that up on the screen. Matthew 28, verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven, only spiritually, you know, until the end, eventually the on earth. No, that's not what he says. You know, I'm like, all, have, all authority in heaven and physically on earth has been given to me. Amen. Now go and make disciples. Like, hey, I'm in charge of everything, FYI, because the son of man has accomplished this cosmic exodus and has now received an eternal kingdom. Like, this is real. Another verse that's interesting, maybe kind of just a side note for some of us who grew up with a certain form of in times things, you know, eschatology is like the fancy word. We, when we say the second coming of Jesus, usually we're talking about like this worldwide, like final day of judgment, like everything is restored and like maybe how, you know, who meets him in the sky and what, you know, there's, 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 there's some questions around that. But, but regardless of the view you come from, we're, we're usually talking about, the, when we talk about the second coming, we're talking about this huge big thing. But, but it's not uncommon. There's two words in the Greek New Testament that, that is used to talk about these ideas about the coming of Jesus. One is erkomai and one is Perusia, or I butchered that word, um, Perusia. One is coming, like, like, you know, Daniel came through the door, Erkomai, you know? But maybe he popped out and I didn't see him and now he's been revealed, <laughs> Perusia. So, so there's actually those words that are used are kind of not consistently translated in our English Standard Version, but it would seem like there's a sense in which Jesus comes that's not cosmic and worldwide. Like AD 70, Jerusalem being destroyed, um, people in Australia weren't like aware of that, you know? Like it's not this worldwide thing. 
Uh, Revelation chapter 3 is a good, um, Revelation chapter 2 is a good example of this. Verse 5, and I have that on the screen. I'll just read it. <clears throat> he's talking to a church. So this is, in the beginning of Revelation, there's like these letters that he's sending to specific churches that exist that we know about. And he's like, here's some encouragement for you churches. And Jesus is saying these things. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Like, church, you're not loving, you're not kind. Like, turn from that, my, my community, and, and represent me appropriately. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I will erco my, I'll show up. Jesus is saying to this church, if you continue to be the way you are, I'm going to show up. And I'm going to not, you're not going to be a church anymore. We're not talking about this worldwide cosmic revealing of, of who, of, uh, in Revelation it's described like the sky is rolled up like a scroll. Like if that happens, if like reality as we know it is just transformed, no one's going to be saying, oh, is Jesus here? You know, we're not like, you're not questioning those things because uh, the, the heavenly dimension is going to break into the world that we live in. There is a point where Jesus will be revealed to everyone. And those who are his saints, those of us who believe that he has a kingdom that's working on this earth and in heaven will be vindicated. Like there will be a point where, where we can say, look, this whole time it was Jesus ruling and reigning and accomplishing his purposes. But in the meantime, Jesus is saying, guess what? I come and I, I, I'm doing things in the world. I'm working in the world in ways that you need to trust me because I have authority over heaven and earth. And I'm working in the, against the dark forces, the prince of the power of the air, in the spiritual realities. I'm, I'm changing your heart. I'm drawing you near to me. I'm giving you eyes to see what's going on. Like I'm ruling and reigning in both realms. And it's interesting to me that there's this pattern of things kind of like a large portion of whatever community, when Noah, Lot, Israel, Jerusalem, 70 AD, where everyone's like, it's fine. You know, it's like, what's that uh, meme with the dog in the house and everything's burning, you know? This is fine. <laughs> and then it comes suddenly. And then it comes suddenly. Jesus comes and does something decisively on earth, like in real life. So what, let's, oh, here's what I want to do. I'm going to jump ahead. I think we're, maybe I'm, maybe it's just me. I want to look at some verses in Proverbs. So give the slide person a heads up. Um, I want to look at some verses in Proverbs. I think we're, we're, I feel, my sense is, and you maybe can say I'm wrong, but my sense is we're a little uncomfortable with Jesus stepping in and doing things in time and space. Like just, I mean, read Augustine describing the sacking of Rome and say that Jesus had something to do with that. It's uncomfortable, you know? Like, we're, I think that's okay. Like, there's a sense in which we're like, Aaron, you're saying that Jesus is working in the world in physical and tangible ways. That he's, he's encouraging his disciples to recognize. 
And, and, and I think Proverbs does a good job of saying, let me kind of tell you how this works. Because Proverbs is just like all these statements about how the way, way the world functions. Or maybe another way to say it is like Proverbs is an exposition of how our just, righteous, and beautiful king rules and reigns. Like he's explaining the, the real function of his kingdom. He's trying to help us understand the nuts and bolts of how he functions in the world. And so let's, we're going to look at a handful of Proverbs. I'll just, I'll just shoot through them. And I, I want you to notice the pattern that comes up. We'll start in Proverbs chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 12 through 15. And then after Proverbs, we're going to kind of end with this idea of like, okay, what do we do with this? You know, like, how does this help us? How does this encourage us? Why does all this matter? You know, are we just connecting all these dots so we can feel like we know something about what Jesus is doing? And I would say, no. We're connecting these dots because the reality of Jesus' kingdom and what he's accomplished helps us not despair and not have apathy. <laughs> like it helps us realize that Jesus is actually working in our daily lives. So in Proverbs, here's what we're doing. We're noticing this pattern of how Jesus rules and reigns on the earth. And we're looking at Proverbs and saying, how does this work? How do we make sense of of Jerusalem, 70 AD? How do we make sense of the fall of Rome? How do we make sense of Lot and Sodom just being destroyed in a day? How do we make sense of those things? And I think it helps to sort of see that through the view of Proverbs. Chapter six, verse 12 through 15 says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eyes, signals with his feet, Points with his finger with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Like this is how wicked people work. Therefore, because they work that way, calamity will come upon them suddenly. Suddenly. All of a sudden. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Sounds kind of like what Jesus is talking about. Jump to chapter 24, Proverbs, <clears throat> verses 19 through 22. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked. Think about that. Like, looking at the news is depressing, right? There's a lot of bad people doing a lot of bad things. You don't have to even have to have a particular political identity to come to terms with that, right? Like, it's just not, it's not pretty. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of the wicked. Like, how often does it seem like the person that's like the worst is the one that's the most successful? Why? For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the king. <laughs> this is how he rules and reigns. And do not join with those who do otherwise, who don't fear him. Why? For disaster will arise suddenly from them. And who knows the ruin that will come from them both? Suddenly. Chapter 28, verse 18. Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. 
it'll come out of nowhere. Jumping down to verse 28 in chapter 28. When the wicked rise, people hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck, the stubborn who continues in their wickedness will suddenly be broken of beyond healing. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Suddenly, suddenly. Here's what I'm trying to communicate. Jesus' kingdom is, yes, an invisible spiritual reality. And it utterly transforms people. The spirit is poured out. And I, it, it, it enables us to see his word, to love him, to draw near to him, to care, to worship to be rescued out of our slavery from sin and to look forward to the day where, where we will be in the promised land as we journey from the exodus to the eternal new creation. Amen. But Jesus' kingdom is also on the earth. He is accomplishing his purposes. And sometimes it seems like in the history of the Bible, in church history, all of a sudden, the wicked who seem like they're getting away from everything, who seem like they're, they're just, it's, it's just getting worse and worse and worse, those who trust Jesus in this world, on this earth, who are faithful to him and, and draw near to him and are encouraged by him and read his word and want to be wise, see the wicked fall suddenly. Like Jesus steps into time and space and decisively acts to grow and build his kingdom. Because that's how he works. And for those of us as eyes to see, we know that Jesus is the one orchestrating all of history for his purposes to build his kingdom. And Proverbs and Jesus and the parables are trying to say, hey, it may not look like that. But sometimes, suddenly, Jesus will step in and act and utterly change things in this world. That's what he does. And so when Jesus is encouraging us that he has received a kingdom on heaven and earth, then he is then requiring things of us. He's requiring things of us. And one of those things is he's saying, look, don't get discouraged. Don't despair. Endure. Trust me and, and, and consider what I'm doing. Realize that we can, you know, we're reading our way through the story, but he's accomplished his cosmic exodus. He's sitting on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. And he tells this par parable. He tells this parable in Luke chapter 18. If we're going to go back to Luke. So I think now that we've kind of, we're going to wrap up with two, two things real quick. What, the, the endurance and the results is what he's asking for, but he's also in, encouraging us with some things here. Luke chapter 18, he says, when he, when he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to pray and not lose heart, don't despair, endure. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. 
And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, give her justice so that she will not beat, not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Like this, hear what this terrible judge is. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Erkomai, when he shows up. He's not telling us this parable so that we can say, someday at the end of time, Jesus will make everything right. Yes, he will do that. I look forward to that. I'm thankful that. Praise the Lord that he will do that. He's saying, but when I show up in time and space, for those of you who endure and are praying and are pleading with me to bring a measure of justice in the world, I want to do that. I'm going to do that. Our temptation, the danger here is that we despair because we don't realize that Jesus is acting in history and actually doing things in the world. Or we don't believe that our prayers our crying out to him will actually affect anything anytime soon, you know? Where we talk about like, here's maybe where I am personally, or here's maybe where our culture is, or, or here's something about my family dynamics, and, and kind of over here is where it ought to be, where it should be, what I want it to be. And we look at that gap and we just despair and say, look, there's no way. There's no way that we're gonna go from here to here. And Jesus is saying, you don't realize that I've received a kingdom and that I'm capable of doing wonderful things. Do we go to him? Do we plead with him? Do we endure and say, and, we, and have a real true belief that our prayers and our desires as we communicate with him are something he wants to and will act on in time and space? He's encouraging us to endure. And then he tells another parable, the one that we read, and we won't read the whole thing over again. But it's this idea that this, this ruler goes to receive a kingdom and he gives gifts, money, his, his things to his servants and says, here, look what I've given you. I'm gonna go receive a kingdom. I'm, a, I'm a right about to step into Jerusalem to accomplish all these things. So I'm telling my disciples this really important thing. And there's another parable where they give different amounts and Matthew is kind of says this parable from a different perspective, but most commentators think that Luke is trying to communicate that all of us equally receive the spirit. All of us equally have been gifted by our king. And he's asking us to do something with that gift. People don't like him. Like who, I mean, it's not hard to imagine that there's parts of the world that are like, I don't like the rule and reign of Jesus. I despise this. He's not in charge of me. He can't tell me what to do. He doesn't know what's right for me. I know better. I mean, that's what we think that way sometimes. But he's saying, I've gifted my servants, all of my servants equally. They have the spirit. And I want them to do something in the world while I receive this kingdom. I want them to produce fruit. I want them to affect the place they work. 
I want them to be a light in their neighborhood in a different way because I've given them the spirit. I want them to use the things I've given them and invest it so that there would be results. And one day when I come, whether, whether in a small, more local sense in the fact that he's stepping in in time and space, will he find us to be faithful? Or when I come in this gigantic, you know, the, the, the sky gets rolled back and there's no question about what's going on. When I come, what will you have produced with what I've given you? And some of his servants will have produced all kinds of things, you know? You gave me one, I gave you 10. Gave me one, I got you five. And he's like, well done, awesome. I love it. I'm thankful for this. And the, what the servant, the other servant says, it's interesting because it's, it's not about, it's not about like, paying back Jesus or anything, you know? Like, he's just like, I'm accomplishing a kingdom and I've gifted you my spirit. I'm not saying like, earn anything back or whatever. Even the servant who is like, basically throws the master under the bus and says, you're, you're a terrible person. You're asking me to do something and, and I know that you're just like, not fair. And I think about that is even our, our view of his law and how he communicates to us in Proverbs or he, he tells us what is good. And sometimes we think like, that's, that's not... That's not fair. You're not kind. You're not loving. We like impugn on his character. And he's like, look, you could have just put it in the bank and got interest. <laughs> like he's not requiring this like huge giant. Well, we can't all be John Calvin and, and you know, 500 years from now, people are reading everything we wrote, you know, like that. It's going to be none of us probably. <laughs> it's maybe someone here. <laughs> I don't know. You know, maybe Quinn, you know, she's starting young. He's not asking for that. <clears throat> he is saying, look, I did all these things. I accomplished this exodus. We're on our way to the promised land. I've gifted you with the spirit. I've equipped you. Like I've actually given you what you need to produce more. That's what I want. And I think that this reality of Jesus in heaven and on earth and all the things that he's doing, I hope that it helps you not despair because he's like, look, just come to me, pray to me, ask for justice. I want to step into time and space and change things for the better to build my kingdom. And I hopefully it encourages us not to be apathetic. Like, well, I can't, I can't do anything I can't accomplish anything for him. And he's like, yes, you can. I've given you my spirit. I've given you everything you need to invest. And some of you will just get interest. And I'll praise you for that. And I'll come back and say, you've been a faithful servant. Some of you will produce all kinds of wonderful things. But at the end of the day, that's in the king's hands. And he's just asking us as we believe that he's ruling and reigning, as we believe that he's accomplished this cosmic exodus and rescued us, as we believe that he's gifted us with the Holy Spirit, as we believe he's working in the world, he's just asking us to trust him. He's asking us not to lose heart. He's asking us to, to endure and to aim with his help, with his gifts to produce results for his kingdom. And someday, someday, when the sky is rolled back and everything is revealed, 
there will still be people who hate his rule and reign. And that is a sobering reality. It's okay, to, it's hard to say, thanks be to God, this is the worst guy, you know? Like, that's hard. But he's encouraging his disciples now. Look, don't despair. Don't be apathetic. We're not waiting for some thing in the future and nothing is happening in the world right now. It's like, use the resources I've given you to contribute in the best way you can. And when the son of man finally is revealed, he can say, I have found faithfulness on the earth. You can worship him and praise him and glorify him together. Because it's not just the exodus. It's like the final, the greatest, the ultimate Eden, the ultimate uh, promised land will live for forever in the new creation. And worship him forever. Let's pray and thank him for that. Father, these are um, weighty truths, at least on my own heart. Lord, um, trying to understand even what Jesus is doing uh, sometimes is difficult and even discerning him in the gospels, much less as he sits on his throne today. But we're not asking you, I'm not asking you to help me get everything and understand everything perfectly, Lord. I'm asking you to help me trust you more. Lord, I pray that as I read the news, I would not be, I wouldn't despair. I would know that you come, and sometimes you come in dramatic ways. And I, I just want to be faithful to you. I want our, uh, our church, the people in this room, uh, your community, Lord. I want us to be faithful to you. I want us to embrace the gifts that you've given us and, and lean into the world to see more things honor and glorify you. I want the investment of your spirit in us to, to bear fruit that will worship you and praise you forever. Eternal things. So help us just trust you more, Lord. Help us realize that you are at work. You're ruling and reigning on, in heaven and over the earth. Yeah, help us believe that so that we can love you more. In your name I pray, amen.